Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey everyone, today we have Sharon Van Etten on the show. The singer-songwriter who Pitchfork recently crowned an indie rock institution. Van Etten was discovered in the early aughts after performing at open mics in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Her 2009 debut album, Because I Was In Love, was written as a way to process surviving a violent crime and an abusive relationship in her 20s. Over the next few years, Sharon continued her journey in music, releasing albums and touring internationally until on a whim around 2015, she auditioned for the Netflix show The OA, landing a major role despite having no previous acting experience. In May, Van Etten released her critically acclaimed sixth album, We've Been Going About This All Wrong. In my opinion, it's her best. It's an album dedicated to the collective trauma amassed in the lead-up to the pandemic and beyond. On today's episode, Broken Record producer Leah Rose talks to Sharon Van Etten about some of those pandemic issues, like recording her new album in her LA-based home studio during lockdown while attempting to balance domestic life. Sharon also explains how her inner Jersey girl comes out on stage and why wearing leather pants and heels on stage post-pandemic feels so daunting. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Leah Rose with Sharon Van Etten. Your new album, it's a pandemic album, but it's also a forced domesticity album. (laughs) You record it at home. You have a studio at home. But that must have been a completely different experience on top of the pandemic, on top of, you know, what was going on politically, on top of wildfires, on top of being a mom, a partner. How did the situation at home influence the recording? Well, you know, as a mom, you know that you find the moments you can to make shit happen, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I have 30 minutes to make some magic. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do the best that I can. And you set realistic goals for yourself. And when you have to be able to ask permission when you really need to be the one that works more than the other. Like, today's the day I really need to be in there. I'm hitting a stride here. And... You know, my partner has pretty set hours in his day, meetings, meetings, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. And in New York, I didn't have a dedicated studio for myself. So in that way, it was for the better. It was in my garage going through my back in my backyard. So I was able to most of the time, if I needed to go in there, I could. If I needed to put my kid on the TV in order for myself to work for an extra hour, I would. Most of the time he was outside skating and on early demos, you can probably hear him in the yard. 
And there was a window from my studio looking out so I could see him going back and forth. And sometimes he would sit in there with me if I was just working on lyrics and he would play the drums. And, you know, other times I could just be reading to disconnect from an emotional place that took me too far. And we'd be hanging out in the living room just like talking and reading. But you just find whatever moments of inspiration you need, you know. Do lyrics or do melodies come to you sort of like a flash of lightning, like you have to like go in and capture it? Or is it something you can just sort of like work up and start with more like vowel sounds or guttural sounds and it turns into something? I mean, most of the time melodies come as soon as I sit down to something, um, whether it be piano, guitar. Lyrics come way later, but I tend to sit down and create chord progression and a melody. And once I get from point A and point B, maybe there's a C. I don't always believe in the C. But I I think if I find something interesting that can at least go to those places, I'll hit record and just let myself sing stream of consciously for about 10, 15 minutes. And I'll let myself wander melodically and see what it is that I find. And most of the time, I I just hit stop, and I move on to the next thing, and I don't think about that too much. And I see if I can find another melodic idea on a different instrument. Sometimes two or three of those ideas in the same day end up being married later on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're three different songs. Sometimes it's three pieces of garbage. But on moments where I can't even play an instrument and hear a melody, I go back to those songs And I listen back and pull out words and phrases and try to remember what it was I was going through. And then I'll shape words around them. On the rare occasion, the words just come out. Like the song Darkish came out in one sitting. Hmm. And I just, I let it live on its own. There's no like verse chorus situation. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's, it's like one solid piece and um I don't know where it came from, but it just came out of thin air. <laughs> what point in the pandemic did that come? That one was the probably the only one that was fully realized before the album. But I didn't want to put it on my last record because I thought it was too apocalyptic. And it was on uh, a demo on my phone. And you could hear the birds chirping through the windows. And I saved it and I put it in this folder because I thought it was just too dark (laughs) for Mm. the context of the songs. And then the song kept coming up in the the demos that I wanted to work on. And, you know, I ended up re-recording that one in the studio. But the one thing I didn't want to lose was the birds, because there was this point in L.A. when people stopped driving and the sky turned blue and so many birds started coming out And in the midst of what I thought was the end of the world, nature was coming back and it gave me this moment. I don't know if you experienced the same thing, but in the midst of all this chaos and these fires and the earthquakes, I I heard the birds and it made me remember this demo. And I thought with how intense all my other songs are, this song now feels light. (laughs) Wow. And I I don't want to build it up. And I want this one song to live on its own without any production. And I knew that before I even built up the other songs, but I I knew the other songs were going to go there. But that was the one where I just felt like, okay, this is where everyone can kind of take a deep breath. (laughs) I read an old Time Out interview that you did in, in 2016, and you said, I'm not a down in the dumps person. People think that I am because of the music that I write. Is that something that you feel compelled to tell people because your music is so emotional? Well, I I definitely like reassuring people that I'm okay, (laughs) number one, especially my mother, who (laughs) at various points in my life was like, I thought you were okay. I thought we were, you know, I thought you were in a good place. I'm like, well, I am, but like, this is my coping mechanism. This is my form of therapy. And if I didn't have music, I don't know where I'd be today. But I do have that outlet, you know, and I think that if any, if you have an outlet, whatever it is, whether it be music or exercising or painting, it's like everyone needs to find their outlet to, to let out the side of them that is hard to communicate. And 
that's how I process my emotions. Yeah. So how do records usually start for you? Like, do you isolate certain sounds or feelings that you want to capture? Or is it more just you like noodling on an instrument or writing lyrics? How do they usually begin? Well, I I tend to write and write and write and not think about the production part of it at first. And then when I have a collection of songs and I look at the entirety of what they are and what I'm talking about and what I'm going through in that moment, then I realize that I'm capturing a time period and it feels like a chapter. And this particular chapter, I had about 20 demos and it was COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to lean into all of the trepidation and the darkness and the doubts and the roller coaster of emotions that we were all feeling in parallel in different ways. But I wrote all the songs on different instruments. So even the bare bones of the songs all started in very different places. And I, I just knew that it was going to be a very emotional, a very dramatic record before I added anything to it. Do you ever do like a gut check with friends or with your partner to sort of like bounce your feeling about a subject off of them to see if it's kind of like a collective feeling? Absolutely. I mean, I write from a really personal place. And, you know, even before quarantine, I wanted to make sure that after I write personal songs, that they feel universal in a way where anyone can connect to them on their own level. So, you know, I check myself there before I share it with anyone else. And I will say about 90% of what I write, no one's ears hear them <laughs> because I always write from a personal place and it starts there without ever thinking that it's going to be for anyone else. So that's my first filter. Uh, second filter is my partner who is also my manager. <laughs> and he also used to play drums with me. So he has a musician's ear as well as thinking of all of my albums collectively and what the trajectory of my sound has been or will be or what kind of twists and turns are interesting just as a friend. But he listens to the content sometimes and asks me like where I'm going, you know, how how dark, how dark is this? Mm -hmm. There's even been a song on the record where he thought I was singing too low. <laughs> He's like, it sounds uncomfortably low. And I was like, I want people to be uncomfortably low with me. So what other types of feedback does he give you? Like specifically when looking at the story of all of your albums together? Sometimes he'll comment on the tempo of my songs and say they could be bumped up a couple, uh, you know, BPMs or whatever, because my, my songs tend to be very mid-tempo. I think I've honed in my mid-tempo ballad for sure. And so he'll check me on, on trying to give some tempo to the records and not laughing at myself when a song is too lighthearted because I'm like with mistakes I thought is this one too silly to include you know because it's about it's about me being a bad dancer but he thought <laughs> <laughs> he's like this is the you know as we're as we start talking about sequencing of the record and you know this is a point in the record where that song comes in we actually really need that one song and um it took us a long time to get there but we did and I found the confidence to sing something that lighthearted in the context of the weight of the whole album. I wanted to ask you about Home to Me. I believe it's a song about your son, but I just wanted to hear how it came to you and what you were thinking when you wrote it. Home to Me is definitely about my son. I, I have peppered in a couple of secret messages to him for when he's old enough to know better. He's five. And... You know, he's he's only just starting to understand what I do. And it's interesting as he starts asking, how many movies does it take to get to the city where you're going to go? It's all like the increments <laughs> are all about how many movies can I watch on the way? Um, <laughs> you can watch The Sandlot four times. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's in the middle of the pandemic and writing a new record, I mean... It's it's very surreal to even imagine going on tour again. Yeah. I wasn't even sure if it would happen. 
Uh, quite frankly, I'm scared to go back out, but I'm going to do it because that's what I'm supposed to do. And that, you know, because things are normal now, right? So they say. <laughs> but, you know, I'm envisioning myself being on the road and my son starting school and I'm I'm basically apologizing because I know how hard it is. But my, I feel like my job is for him to grow up watching us figure it out, watching us make it work, and helping each other thrive even when it's hard. And I would not be my full self if I did not have music and my band and the fans that support it. That's so important, too. That's not a little point. Right. It's so important to feel like yourself after you've had a child. It's just such a big deal. And I was another thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about you going on stage after being home and being a mom and, you know, wearing the pandemic clothes and whatever it is, you know, and all of a sudden you have to step on stage with maybe makeup or you have to do your hair and have like a cool outfit. That seems like such a big transition. <laughs> and like, can you even like move your body in the way you want to move it? Like, how do you get back into that mode? Let me tell you, I first of all, I, I got a pair of leather pants for the last tour and I was nervous to put them back on. I was like, really? Leather pants? Why did I do this to myself? Why am I going in this rock direction? Why am I trying to be Joan Jett right now? I really just, w I wish I could wear sweatpants on stage. Um, you know, we just had our first warm-up shows uh, recently, and there, on one hand, it's nice to shake it off, and I'm I'm glad that I'm, as my partner calls, elevated Sharon. You know, you're still <laughs> yourself. It's just like if you were going out on the town or something, and I, it helps to get into this alter ego-ish uh, in order to disconnect from that person. Yes. Even like practice, like I, I was practicing walking in heels again around the house because I've been wearing my Blundstones every day, every day. Like, okay, well, maybe I need to see if Blundstones will collaborate with me on like a Chelsea <laughs> boot because <laughs> that, that, that's going to be my transition. Yeah, I was looking at your European tour dates last night and I was just thinking about it like, it must be such a singular experience for you, just as a mother and as a partner, how to figure out how to balance the domestic side of life and also like show up and be on stage and be so super present to the fans. Is there anybody in your life who you can talk to about that, like how to balance that and how to sort of like come to terms with it in your mind? I mean, I've talked to different parents for sure. And I think what's so unique is that any rigid parent would see my career and just be like, oh, yeah, your kid's never going on the road. I've never been like that in my life. But as I'm getting older, I know that I want some structure for my kid because I don't naturally have it as a musician and a Pisces. And I'm just a dreamer. And I, I, I thrive in structure, even though I fight against it all the time. So I'm trying to find the best of both worlds. Yeah. Most parents that I know that are on the road are dads, and they have a very different kind of attachment to kids. There's a separation a bit more where I, cons I feel constantly connected. And the mothers that I talk to they, again, they have different styles and they, they tend to be able to bring a nanny on tour full time. And I can't do that either. I love when my son comes out and he sees what I do. I want him to know what I do. I want him to know that I'm available. I want him to be able to visualize what my schedule is every day. So if I tell him I'm sound checking, he'll know what that means. If I tell him I'm just backstage with the guys, he knows what what I'm talking about. And when he knows that I didn't sleep well through the night because of the bunk, then he'll know exactly what I'm talking about because he knows what the bunk is and yeah. he knows what backstage is, you know, but I also, he starts kindergarten in August and I realize that I'm going to be on tour for his first day of school and my heart's already broken, you know, but I want him to have that. So you can't have both. Yeah. We had Michael Stipe on the show recently and he was talking about the postpartum period after you come off of a big tour or after you finish an album. And I was curious to know, since you've actually been through postpartum, <laughs> are those sort of like similar feelings when you finish a big project? 
Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes. I mean, your soul is torn open. You, like, give all these dogs. I mean, anyone that's gone through 34 hours of induced labor then to be cut open I and then takes months to heal. And I'm, you know, my son is five and I still feel my incision and I'm numb down there and I pee every time I laugh. I mean, yes, but it's intense when you make a record. It's intense when you go on tour and you come home. It's intense. And it's like it's more it's not postpartum. It's like you need a nap and you don't want to be bothered. And. The things that people don't tell you, the healing process is different. And with touring, it's like you come home and you're exhausted. The, the physical, <laughs> physical aspect is real. We have to pause for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Sharon Van Etten and Leah Rose. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer, Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more from Leah Rose's conversation with Sharon Van Etten. Let's talk a little bit about your background growing up in Jersey. Do you remember like the first artist or the first piece of music that you really connected to? The first song I ever fell in love with was Unchained Melody. I just thought it was one of the most beautiful songs ever written. I still do. But the first thing I sought out on my own was Elastica. I found it at a Sam Goody in the mall. 
And I remember that I wanted to be them so bad. That was like, they look so cool. It was like the connect, you know, connection. Uh huh. I didn't know a lot of female rock musicians that were modern, but that kind of opened up this whole other gate. As soon as my my schoolmates were here, like we we're trading Walkman and sharing the cassettes we we're listening to, and I was like, oh, Sonic Youth, cool, Nirvana, cool, you know, Liz Fair, cool. But that was kind of my my gateway into getting into with the cool kids because I listened to a lot of classic music leading up to that. So were you listening to stuff that your brothers and sisters were hearing or what was like, what was music like in your house? It was all over the place. So I I was one of five kids and my dad had the vinyl collection that he had since he was a kid. So it was a lot of 60s, 60s, 70s rock. His favorite band is Jethro Tull and he was listening to music constantly in the car, but it was Jethro Tull, The Beatles, Rolling Stones, The Kings, Mott the Hoople. And then my older brother, who was super into that music as well, because we all listened to what my dad listened to. Yeah. My older brother gave me his box of tapes when he left for college as a going away present. And it was like Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine. Um, Ned's Atomic Dustbin, Gin Blossoms, Soul Asylum. My mom was like folk. She likes Joni Mitchell and um, Melanie. And she got me into Mary Chapin and Lucinda Williams. So like I feel like, like I'm so I'm inspired by so much <laughs> that I get I get confused. <laughs> yeah. Was the house loud? Like was there always music playing? Like what was the regular vibe in the house? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my dad was blasting records downstairs. And then when there wasn't music going on in the basement, then the drums were probably being played or my brother and his friends were probably jamming. And like with road trips, especially when there's like seven of us in a car, I, we when we drove my brother cross country to go to Arizona State, we were in my parents' green minivan and we have one of those Macs on the top of the car. And the whole like there's certain things that I'll still remember from this road trip is that we all had our Walkman <laughs> and Nutrigrain bars. I will never be able to eat one again in my life because I smell them forever. Uh, or a Yoohoo. Did that prepare you at all for going on tour, especially early tours? Just like being packed into a car with your family or just living in a house with a lot of things going on? Like I'm sure at times it was chaotic. Like did that prepare you for that life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, I was raised as a camper and um, you learn how to share space and not to take up a lot of space. And I also learned to be like a listener and not a talker, um, although I'm talking a lot right now. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a better listener than a talker. I'm kind of indecisive because there were so many of us that I never I let everyone else make the decision because if I was another opinion in the mix, I just it stressed me out too much. And so I would. um I would just kind of let everyone else decide and deal with it because I didn't really care. Like I, I just learned to not care. So when did you start actually playing? When did you start picking up instruments and what did you play first? Instruments were encouraged at a really young age. I remember when I moved in about, I think, kindergarten. And there was a, it was like a fixer-upper Victorian house where I was. I first lived in, in Nutley, New Jersey. But the people that moved didn't want to take their grand piano, and it was like this old grand piano. And everyone was like, it was chaotic with everybody like mo like moving in and like the kids claiming their rooms or whatever. But like I was too young to know. And I got, I guess I got lost in the shuffle where I couldn't find anybody. My mom was looking for me. I guess, you know, I was wandering around and then she heard me and I was under the piano crying. And she said that ever since that day, I gravitated towards that piano and I started just like hearing notes and humming along to it. And she's like, you always played it. And then I, I think by the time I was in second or third grade, I, I, got, I got lessons and I got piano lessons early on, and then I got Suzuki violin lessons through my local elementary school. Nice. And then in the middle of my sixth grade year, we moved, and there wasn't really like a music scene there. And so it wasn't until high school that I, I, I tried to go back into the music world, and then I did choir. 
And when I went into high school is when my brother left for college and he left me his guitar. And I started playing guitar and I was learning how to sing properly. And before that, I was only singing in church. We used to go every Sunday. I wasn't really religious, but I I, I loved messing with everyone in the room because they'd only sing the melody and I'd be the only one in the whole room singing, singing a harmony. But I like challenging myself to like learn harmonies that way. And um, by the time I was in choir, I, I kind of found my niche. That's when the guitar and the singing started. Was there a point when you decided maybe around, you know, high school, late high school or early college age that you wanted to try and take a crack at music full time? Or was it always sort of a hobby at that point? It was a hobby for sure. In high school, I I used to write more silly songs with an older friend of mine. Her name was Dana. And we would sit on the main street and just write about what we saw like a gangster in the corner with his pants blowing in the wind and, uh, uh, you know, this green canoe that sat on the main street that were like, one day we're going to save up enough money to buy this green canoe. Um, but very like ween-like songs. Oh, I um, love ween. Yeah. And they were like a big, you know, we were, you know, they lived, they lived close to where we were from. Uh, oh, they're in Pennsylvania, right? Like yeah. Like New, New Hope? Yeah. So like I used to, I used to play on the corners of Lambertville and New Hope and, when I when I moved in the middle of my sixth grade year, we moved to a town closer to Pennsylvania, and Lambertville New Lambertville New Hope had like the open mics that I I would go to later in life. But yeah, I mean, I just I didn't take it seriously, but I knew that I that was the only thing I ever cared about was music. I didn't know what I was gonna do or how I was gonna do it. But my parents, when we talked about what I was gonna do for a job one day, and I was like, I just, I wanna do music. They're like, but what about it? You know, they say after high school, I have to go to college. So what do I wanna do in college? And there wasn't like, if I could have a year off to figure it out or anything, it was just not an option at that time. In the 90s, it wasn't really discussed. I don't feel like it was the natural thing to do. You can do it, so let's do it. And they wanted me to have a backup plan. Yeah. I threw a kid that was a year ahead of me in in choir, actually, and in theater, which I also did musicals and theater. He went to a recording school in Middle Tennessee in Murfreesboro. He said, you should check out Middle Tennessee. It's pretty cool. There's a good recording program, and it's in the fastest city, fastest growing city in the South. So they said it was before East Nashville popped up at all. So I moved there in 99. It was the only school I applied to. And... um. I didn't get past the general studies classes because I, I had this illusion that I could finally go to school for music and I'd be taking music classes. But the whole first year was spent doing uh, science and math and, and like the prereqs. English. But I was like, I just, I got like straight A's in high school and now I have to do this all over again. And I was so mad that I stopped going. Yeah. And I got a job at a venue. And um, that's when I started writing songs for real. But... I didn't think I could do it full time until my 20s when I left Tennessee with my tail between my legs after I had a bad relationship, moved back in with my parents for a year to save money. And then after that year, I moved to New York in about 2004, 2005, and um, really, really gave it my first go with the songs that I had written in the past. Do you remember some of those early performances? And were you just sort of like closing your eyes and going inside? Or were you able to be aware of yourself in the situation? I used to hide behind my bangs. And I always had shortcuts because whenever I got stressed out, I would cut my hair. And I always have the weirdest haircuts because I cut it myself, especially <laughs> the back. But the front was always long. And and so I would do this thing where I would perform and hide behind my behind my hair so I didn't have to look at people and I used to just drink a little bit too much whiskey and go to open mics and tell people that I only wanted to write music to make people cry. <laughs> yeah. But I was like so shy, but I was also a shit talker. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I was so, I didn't know, like I just, I was driven to play and I had no idea why. I didn't even, I didn't have enough distance from the songs to realize how intense they were and I would do this like weird thing in between where people was, weren't sure if I was doing stand-up if this was like performance art or if I, I actually was playing real songs like they just <laughs> they were so lost but when I started you know singing more and talking less and um you know making less jokes I think 
the music made more sense. <laughs> I was thinking about you growing up in Jersey. Is there any sort of connective tissue that you feel between you, Patti Smith, and Springsteen? Like, is there anything there? Like, is there any commonality? <laughs> I grew up listening to Bruce Springsteen. And as an adult, I found Patty. And I think when I finally learned how to have a band, they had a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's my only thing. I, um, you know, I appreciate them both for different reasons. Bruce was such a, like a neighbor, a friend, you know, not my neighbor, but you know what I mean. I feel like everyone from Jersey, I still remember this kid in elementary school who swore that that was his uncle or his cousin or something. And <laughs> I wanted to believe it so bad just because his last name was Springsteen. But, um, you know, I feel like everyone from New Jersey feels this camaraderie with Bruce Springsteen because yeah. he just talks about growing up in a small town and like working class, blue collar, like stories that nobody tells. And that's a lot of Jersey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't understand or come into Patti Smith's music until I had gone through, until I lived a life a bit to be able to connect with her, with her trauma and with her path in life and living in New York. You know, New York's to me embodies Patti Smith so much. Mm -hmm. And even in the places that I lived, I felt like I was circling her past lives and, um, you know, it makes me made me think differently about how I phrased things and and what it was I wanted to share versus how how can I use things to symbolize versus speak so directly so that again more more people can connect with it in their own way versus just telling them exactly how I felt and I'm still learning how to do that and I still aspire to learn how to write in a more poetic way as she does. Yeah, I mean, I feel there's a certain amount of grit between the three of you. Like, that might be a commonality. <laughs> the way they engage with the audience, too, is something that I I want to learn how to do better. I'm learning how to put instruments down. You know, that there's just part of me as a musician that I'm like, I still play. I play guitar. I play keys. I played a lot on this record. But I think in a live setting, as I'm learning to let go of the instrument, I'm actually a better performer when I'm not multitasking if I can just sing. But I'm a little territorial where I'm like, Charlie, I don't want you to play my guitar part. Can you play the piano <laughs> instead? But it actually doesn't help the situation most of the time. I just have to let go and be a singer. But it's such a hard thing to do after being my own band for so long, you know? Yeah. Do you ever get hung up about what you do on stage, like physically, if you don't have an instrument? Well, yeah, what do I do with my hands? Sure. I mean, right. I, I realize I'm a pointer. I'm like pointing <laughs> so much, you know, I'm like what would Elaine do? You know, I'm like such a Jersey girl. I'm just pointing at everyone. <laughs> and then I look back and I'm like, remember, people are just going to mirror that. If you're pointing at everyone, they're just going to point right back to you. And then all of a sudden, like you have an audience that's all pointing at me. And I'm like, maybe I need to figure out more signs. But yeah, I'm still figuring out that part of it. But it's fun to like walk around stage and mess with my bandmates and interact with them in other ways but I need to watch a lot more performance videos to, to be inspired about what that is but I also want to find it on my own without completely ripping people Patty's a really crazy performer she's really uh, good she's so I mean she's so wonderful I gotten to see her twice at Bowery for New Year's uh, before she stopped doing the New Year's shows I remember where she was having a night and she kind of stopped the show and was just talking for a while and saying that, you know, she doesn't know why, but it was one of those days where she woke up and she's like, today's just not my day. <laughs> having a bad day. Nothing happened. But I had him having a bad day. And doesn't that just piss you off? <laughs> she's just talking about how something I'm just she's like, I'm just trying to shake this thing off. I don't know what it is, but it's this thing and I've been feeling it all day. And the whole audience just started, like, connecting with her. And, like, yeah. it was like, you know, the do you believe in fairies kind of feeling where all of a sudden, like, the energy of the crowd gave her her confidence back. Yep. And she went right into pissing in a river. And I lost my mind. It was one of the best performances I've ever seen in my life. I think that was 2010. So she's an expert vamper, which Springsteen is, too. 
<laughs> so there's another connection. Oh my gosh. Okay. I got to learn on that. Yeah. The power of the vamp. Yeah. yeah. Like, guys, this is where you can vamp. You wait on me to do some kind of thing. You know, you have to learn how to be able to speak, right? At a certain point and engage with the audience and, and yes, be able to, to get another emotion besides the emotion of the songs that you're giving so that you can show them a bit about who you are. Yeah. And, and sometimes shit happens on stage that's funny. And sometimes you need to communicate it. Sometimes you just, you, I, I try to engage with the, the people in the audience and you never know what's going to come from there. But, you know, it's uncomfortable sometimes when it's only song, 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 and you don't ever try to connect with them in another way. We'll be right back after a break with more from Sharon Van Etten and Leah Rose. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. 
Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with Sharon Van Etten. But before we jump back into the conversation, let's hear her new song, Darkness Fades. In darkness fades, it sounds like you're using your voice in a new way. It's like you're able to harness more power in your vocals. 
And is that something that's coming from your chest or is it more of like from your head? Like, where is that coming from and, and how did you prepare yourself to do that? Um, I, honestly, I was harnessing my inner choir girl <laughs> and, um, you know, it comes up through my boots, but it probably sits in my, you know, in my abs and my chest somewhere, you know, my diaphragm. But I, I, I took some vocal lessons from this woman in New York, jo- Joy Askew, uh, who used to sing a lot with Peter Gabriel and Laurie Anderson. Oh, wow. And so she was a trained rock singer who doesn't judge you based on, like, how you sing, how you look, what your lifestyle is. She teaches you exercises and how to relax, like, your throat, your jaw, your tongue, and how to project your voice in a different way by the shapes you can make with your mouth. (laughs) Wow. And so you have to do a lot of visualizing when you open yourself up like that and imagine, like, your body as a straw and just allowing air to go through. It's a lot easier said than done. But, yeah, when I when I first wrote that melody, it was I didn't know it was going to come out, and I felt like I was controlling so much grief. And the only way I could get it out was pretending like I was in choir <laughs> and um, singing it in this uh, proper way almost. I had to posture and stand and close my eyes and just visualize that I was singing in that way. Have you seen a difference in in the way that you sing after taking the vocal lessons and doing the visualizations? I mean, it's something I have to keep up, but I'll bring the exercises on tour because it's also maintenance. It's muscle memory of even how you talk. So like if I was trying to save my voice, I would talk more like this. And it's the way that you aim the air at the roof of your mouth so you're you're tricking your throat into not receiving air through your vocal cords. Oh. But how I really talk, it all sits right here. And um, that's the rasp. But if I speak like this, it's very different. <laughs> but I can't do that without laughing. Yeah. This is some of the hard, these are some of the hardest songs as a singer to perform. And I just had four shows in a row and I've had two days off in my, I could just feel it. You know, in my throat, I'm like, I need to practice more. I'm so, like, vocally out of shape. And they are very demanding songs, not just in intensity in the performance, but also the range is insane. I don't know why I did this to myself. Yes. Okay, I just want to ask you about a couple more songs, if that's okay. Of course. Can you tell me about the story about Every Time the Sun Comes Up? I know it's a line I'm probably going to regret the rest of my life. But we we just were having a late night and it was a song that I hadn't finished and we were ahead of schedule in the studio and we had time to work on one more. And the band was encouraging me to finish it because they were like, this is going to be a classic song. It's so Bruce Springsteen. And I was like, well, I don't know, like my lyrics aren't done. And they're like, why don't you just take a break, have like a drink and a smoke and come back. And like, well, I'll play the song live and you can just you can just freestyle lyrics. We won't keep anything. And then we can at least get the band music done. And then um, you can work on the lyrics another time. You can work on the vocals another time because we'll be recording in separate rooms or whatever. And while, you know, while I was having a drink with the band, like I literally, you know, I I broke Stuart Lerman, uh, who produced the record with me. I like broke one of his glasses and like I cleaned it up and like. You had to do the dishes in the bathroom in the studio that we were at. So it was called like Hobo Sound. And it was an amazing studio that was just through the Lincoln Tunnel in Weehawken, New Jersey. And I would take the bus there from the Port Authority. And it was an amazing setup. It was just exactly what I needed. It wasn't too much. It wasn't too little. It was just enough for what I needed at that time. And this the funny thing was where you did the dishes, it was in the bathroom. And I was just a little stone. And I thought it was really funny that I was like doing the dishes after I went to the bathroom. <laughs> And um, so I came back into the studio and like the band's all ready for me to go. And I'm thinking this isn't a keep or take. And so I'm just singing stream of consciously in the, in the place of like just the band's playing live together. And I'm just doing these vocals. And I'm like, oh, I'm not worried because they're not going to keep it. But they kept it and they said, I don't think you need to rewrite any of this. And I was like, oh, man, OK, I'm probably going to re- regret this later. 
but I was just kind of documenting what happened, but like taking out of context, it seems kind of random, but. I mean, that song gets stuck in my head like no other. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Also, I was reading about, you've been studying psychology on and off, and it sounds like you've really wanted to, at a certain point, I think around 2015, you wanted to take a break from music and you started to go back to school but then you got the job on the OA and it sounds like things have just been sort of like building and building, but that desire is still there to finish your psychology degree and possibly pursue that in in some way or another. Is that something that you're still thinking about now? Absolutely. I've actually, you know, I never finished my undergrad, but I, I'm, I'm two classes away from being able to transfer to a university um, I just have to hit these gen- these damn general studies classes. Yes. I just need one science and one statistics class, and I can transfer to the psychology program in a university in California. But I can't wait to get past the, you know, the general studies classes so I can figure out what it is that I most connect with, because I'm sure once I start digging into the to the more specific classes in psychology that I'll, I'll be able to focus on what it is I want to do because I don't know if it's the social work aspect or if it's working out of a university and connecting with younger kids as they transition from their homes or if it's one-on-one therapy in like my own practice or if it's being a consultant in some kind of way. I'm not sure, but yeah, I just I want to help. I just want to help people learn how to talk about their emotions because <laughs> it's yeah. the only thing I've had that's been consistent in my life and in, in learning how to hone. And it's it's helped me a lot. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Maybe it was in the new Pitchfork profile on you that you said maybe when you're 50, you'll slow down with the creative side of things and focus more on building a psychology practice or figuring out what that is. But it also seems like you have so much creative ambition still and there's so much that you're still doing and there's definitely more music so do you think that's something that'll actually ever happen i mean my goal is to have a degree by the time i'm 50 I, i'm 41 i think that's a realistic goal while chipping away at, at this degree while also still working on music because that is something that i feel like i will always do you know, I don't know where these other interests will, will take me. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things, but I think um, if I set goals for myself that they will be realistic. And, you know, once I say, okay, I'm going to go to school for this, I'll focus on that for a semester or two, uh, depending on what the, the program looks like. I'll I'll say, okay, then I'm going to get a dedicate a year to this and we'll see where this leads. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's like, I think it's healthy to learn how to pivot. And as we get older, it's, it's, it's I think it's healthy to not depend on one thing to sustain ourselves. And um, again, I want, I want my son to grow up thinking that anything is possible. <laughs> so yeah. for me to be able to pivot from uh, being on the road all the time to, to finding work that doesn't mean that I have to be absent, then I'm all for it. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was so fun talking to you. And I wish you huge, huge luck on the tour. You're going to kill it. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much, Leah. It was really nice getting to talk with you. I appreciate you taking the time. It was really, really fun. Thanks to Sharon Van Etten for giving us insight into the making of her new album, We've Been Going About This All Wrong. To hear our favorite Sharon Van Etten songs, check out the playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond.
Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.